it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. tried not to take it personally but uh, actually Groundhog Day the event the real life event is um, is something that I, I do check in on online every year just to, just to see how much more winter we will be having but let's get let's get down to um, that's not a joke either right it's something I really enjoy uh, let's get down to business one of our favorite Bill Murray vehicles or certainly mine uh, Groundhog Day is a film which, um, as a kid growing up, meant an awful lot to me because this was the Bill Murray film I watched as a child, sort of immediately after Ghostbusters. This was the next Bill Murray thing that I probably got into, es- especially when I figured out that Egon directed it. Should we talk about Danny Rubin a bit and uh, the original, the, the original writer of Groundhog Day? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. Developed the Groundhog Day script off- on the advice of his agent who said that oh, you should have this kind of high-concept script that you can just leave around with, with people, get you into meetings, and you'll pick up a, a other work off of it because it will be an intriguing idea. And I think um, initially he had this idea that if a person could live forever, if they were immortal, uh, over a very long period of time, how would they change? And I think he had a guy going through lots of different eras of history. He then developed this idea of it would be the same, a guy li- living one day over and over again. Uh, essentially, I, th- I think that's that's where it, it got to, and it started to develop a li- little bit of interest. The film, as we all know it, has that three-act structure, but at one point in, in the script, it was definitely written from almost the half halfway through point, when you open up and you realise... This, why does this guy know absolutely everything that's going on? Why does this guy seem to be a mortal or some kind of god? Over time, through various devices like narration, uh, you were going to figure out that actually he was stuck in this in this same day. I think the key to understanding the meta text of Groundhog Day, the production of it, is understanding the tension between Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. A tension between a director inclined towards comedy and mm-hmm. a star who's left behind his comedy roots and is far more interested in something which comments with much greater clarity and erudition on the human condition. So Harold Ramis to a lot of people is Egon from Ghostbusters. He's a lot more than that. He's one of the best writers of comedies in the 70s and 80s. Animal House, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters consecutively. (laughs) Back to school with Rodney Dangerfield which is fine. Then a couple of ropey ones but came back with Groundhog Day. And Harold Ramis and Bill Murray formed something of a double act. By the by, the middle of the 90s, Bill Murray was finished with comedy. You, I think you know this, Luke, as well. He literally did study at the Sarbonne. He essentially jacked in Hollywood and began making films much more sporadically um, after Ghostbusters. Clearly, he was in a, a man of intelligence and developing sophistication and developing education and wanted to pivot into greater art. And there's always been mm-hmm. this tension ever since. To put it more succinctly, there was a perception that Murray needed Ramis to be funny because of their early work together, because all of their best stuff was together. And Murray didn't like that. He felt like he was regressing in some way as an artist. Exactly I suppose, that. A better way of putting it. Yeah, and, uh... exactly, yeah. But yes, even by Ghostbusters 2, 
He's moved away from the comedy fraternity. And in, in that time, he'd only made a couple of pictures. He still had a, a, a long-standing friendship with Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donoghue that he worked on Scrooged with. But I think he felt, probably, that his time with Ramus was behind him and he didn't any longer want to be Carl Spackler from Caddyshack. Yeah, you know, that and he, makes he sense. didn't want to be John Winger from Stripes. Uh, after a time, he went back to fairly broad comedy, just yeah, as quickly. Com- they, they then didn't make any money, so I guess yeah. that was almost yeah, just uh, as... that was that almost almost was salt in the wound. Arguably, giving the public what they want, but their their lackluster performances at the box office. Like Steve Martin, I don't think Murray ever wants to be that wild and crazy guy again. That was something he did approaching forty years ago. And by the time he was 35, like anybody, he wanted to move on. And yet he still has a fan base and producers and, and a career that would seek to confine him. In understanding Groundhog Day, it needs to be seen in the context that this, for, for many people, this was a, a double act, the uh, reunion of a great double act that had made in Caddyshack, Stripes and Ghostbusters and Meatballs, four of the funniest comedies of the 70s and 80s, but that was on its last legs. And there were so many reasons why it was ready to burst apart and never rekindle again. So I think what's interesting is, is like you just alluded to, uh, Murray was looking for something a little bit more, um, something that would uh, allude to the... to talk about the human condition and be a little bit more weighty than just, just a standard broad comedy. You know, f- for me, some of the greatest time travel films of all time are, or, or stories of all time, are Christmas Carol and Back to the Future. I think this is this is one of them. I know he's not travelling through time necessarily, but there is the feeling of the weight of time. Uh, the documentary on the DVD is called The Weight of Time. And there's that obviously that iconic shot of the clock. So when the numbers change and, and in slow motion, you see them dropping down and you feel the weight of the numbers changing. So the alarm clock will, will, will trigger. tried not to take it personally but uh, actually Groundhog Day the event the real life event is um is something that I, I do check in on online every year just to, just to see how much more winter we will be having but let's get let's get down to um, that's not a joke either right it's something I really enjoy uh let's get down to business one of our favorite Bill Murray vehicles or certainly mine uh, Groundhog Day is a film, as as you say, Fletch, from 1993, which, um, as a kid growing up, meant an awful lot to me, because this was the Bill Murray film I watched as a child, sort of immediately after Ghostbusters. This was the next Bill Murray thing that I probably got into. So, as far as I was concerned, especially when I figured out that Egon directed it, I, as far as I was concerned, this was essentially Ghostbusters 3. Uh, <laughs> Let's begin halfway through, which is where the original script began. <laughs> shall we talk about? Shall we talk about Danny Rubin a bit and uh, the original, the, the original writer of Groundhog Day? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. He developed the Groundhog Day script of, on the advice of his agent, who said that oh, you should have this kind of co- high concept script that you can just leave around with with people, get you into meetings, and you'll pick up other work off of it because it will be an intriguing idea, which is precisely uh, what he did. 
And I think um, initially he had this idea that if a person could live forever, if they were immortal, uh, over a very long period of time, how would they change? And I think he had all of these ideas about it would be the a guy going through lots of different eras of history. That would have been completely impractical. So he then... He then developed this idea of it would be the same a guy living one day over and over again. Essentially, I, th- I think that's that's where it it got to, and it started to develop a li- little bit of interest. The film, as we all know it, has that three act structure where we have we're introduced to Bill Murray, uh, Bill Murray's character at the beginning of the movie, uh, Phil Connors, uh, Annie McDowell as uh, as Rita, and also Chris Elliott as Larry, his cameraman. We're introduced to them in the final cut at the beginning of the movie. There's a proper three-act structure, essentially a beginning, middle, and end, even though he's living the same day again and again. But at one point in in the script, it was definitely written from almost the half halfway through point when you open up and you realise, this: why does this guy know absolutely everything that's going on? Why does this guy seem to be immortal or some kind of god? Why can he predict everyone's behavior and what they're about to say and then over time through various devices like narration uh, you were going to figure out that actually he was stuck in this in this same day again and again i think the key to understanding the meta text of groundhog day the production of it is understanding the tension between bill murray and harold ramus a tension between a director inclined towards comedy and mm-hmm. a star who's left behind his comedy roots and is far more interested in something which comments with much greater clarity and erudition on the human condition so Harold Ramis to a lot of people is Egon from Ghostbusters he's a lot more than that he's one of the best writers of comedies in the 70s and 80s Animal House, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters consecutively one after the other followed by (laughs) Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield which is fine then a couple of ropey ones but came back with Groundhog Day and Mm -hmm. Harold Ramis and Bill Murray formed something of a double act Murray by the by the middle of the 90s Bill Murray was finished with comedy you I think you know this Luke as well he literally did study at the Sarbonne he essentially jacked in Hollywood and began making films much more sporadically after um, after Ghostbusters clearly he was in a man of intelligence and developing sophistication and developing education and wanted to pivot into greater art. And there's always been Mm -hmm. this tension ever since. To put it more succinctly, there was a perception that Murray needed Ramis to be funny because of their early work together, because all of their best stuff was together. And Murray didn't like that. I think that when they reunited for Groundhog Day... He felt like he was regressing in some way as an artist. Exactly that. A better way of putting it. Yeah, and, uh... exactly, yeah. But yes, even by Ghostbusters 2, he's moved away from the comedy fraternity. And in, in that time, he'd only made a couple of pictures. He still had a, a, a long-standing friendship with Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donoghue that he worked on Scrooged with. But I think he felt that his time with Ramus was behind him and he didn't any longer want to be Carl Spackler from Caddyshack. It was Murray's intention to be an actor capable of dramatic roles not just known as a wacky fun guy uh, after a time he went back to fairly broad comedy they then didn't make any money so i guess yeah. that was almost yeah just uh, as... that was that almost almost was salt in the wound arguably giving the public what they want but their their lackluster uh performances at the box office uh, like steve martin i don't think murray ever wants to be that wild and crazy guy again that was something he did approaching 40 years ago i think that in the life of bill murray born in 1950 
he was that kind of humour when he was 26 years old and when he was 30 years old. And by the time he was 35, like anybody, he wanted to move on. And yet he still has a fan base and producers and, and a career that would seek to confine him. In understanding Groundhog Day, it needs to be seen in the context that this, for, for many people, this was a, a double act, the uh, reunion of a great double act that had made in Caddyshack, Stripes and Ghostbusters and Meatballs, four of the funniest comedies of the 70s and 80s but that was on its last legs and there were so many reasons why it was ready to burst apart and never rekindle again. So I think what's interesting is, is like you just alluded to, uh, Murray was looking for something a little bit more, something that would uh, allude to the human condition and be a little bit more weighty than just, just a standard broad comedy. You know, f- for me, some of the greatest time travel films of all time are, or, or stories of all time are Christmas Carol and Back to the Future. I think this is this is one of them. I know he's not travelling through time necessarily, but there is the feeling of the weight of time. Uh, the documentary on the DVD is called The Weight of Time. And there's that obviously that iconic shot of the clock when they, they have just... They've obviously built a, a huge oversized prop of the, of the clock. So when the numbers change and, and in slow motion, you see them dropping down and you feel the weight we really come on. Hey, it's a creative meeting. Forget it. Wait a second. We've got work to do. No, I don't. I've already done it twice. Now, when you get finished, come and meet me in the diner. Phil. What's that all about? I don't know. Prima does. But anyway, you didn't accept it, and uh, I tried not to take it personally. But uh, actually, Groundhog Day, the event, the real-life event, is um, is something that I, I do check in on online every year, just to, just to see how much more winter we will be having. But let's get let's get down to... Um, that's not a joke either, right? It's something I really enjoy. Uh, let's get down to business. One of our favourite Bill Murray vehicles, or certainly mine... Uh, Groundhog Day is a film, as as you say, Fletch, from 1993, which, um, as a kid growing up, meant an awful lot to me, because this was the Bill Murray film I watched as a child, sort of immediately after Ghostbusters. This was the next Bill Murray thing that I probably got into. So, as far as I was concerned, especially when I figured out that Egon directed it, (laughs) as far as I was concerned, this was... Essentially, Ghostbusters three. Let's begin halfway through where the original script began. <laughs> shall we talk about? Shall we talk about Danny Rubin a bit and uh, the original, the, the original writer of Groundhog Day? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. He developed the Groundhog Day script on the advice of his agent, who said that oh, you should have this kind of high concept script that you can just leave around with with people, get you into meetings and you'll pick up other work off of it because it will be an intriguing idea, which is precisely uh, what he did. And I think um, initially he had this idea that if a person could live forever, if they were immortal, uh, over a very long period of time, how would they change? And I think he had all of these ideas about it would be the a guy going through lots of different eras of history and this kind of thing. And of course, um, that would have been completely impractical. So he then, he then developed this idea... Rita, I'm reliving the same day over and over. Groundhog Day, today. Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline. No, really, this is the third time. 
essentially, I, I think that's that's where it, it got to, and it started to develop a li- little bit of interest. The film, as we all know it, has that three-act structure where we have, we're introduced to Bill Murray, uh, Bill Murray's character at the beginning of the movie, but at one point in, in the script, it was definitely written from almost the half, halfway through point. You open up, and why does this guy know absolutely everything that's going on? Why can he predict everyone's behavior and what they're about to say i'm sorry what was that again i'm a god you're god i'm a god i'm not the god i don't think because you survived a car wreck i didn't just survive a wreck i wasn't just blown up yesterday i have been stabbed shot poisoned frozen hung electrocuted and burned oh really and every morning i wake up without a scratch on me not a dent in the fender I am an immortal. And then over time, through various devices like narration, uh, you were going to figure out that actually he was stuck in this in this same day again and again. You know, f- for me, some of the greatest time travel films of all time are, or, or stories of all time, are Christmas Carol and Back to the Future. I think this is this is one of them. I know he's not travelling through time necessarily, but there is the feeling of the weight of time. Uh, the documentary on the DVD is called The Weight of Time. And there's that obviously that iconic shot of the clock when they they have just they've obviously built a, a huge oversized prop of the of the clock. So when the numbers change and, and in slow motion you see them dropping down and you feel the weight of the numbers changing. Okay, campers, rise and shine. And don't forget your booties, because it's cold out there today. It's cold out there every day. Anyway, you didn't accept it, and uh, I tried not to take it personally. But uh, actually, Groundhog Day, the event, the real life event, is um, is something that I, I do check in on online every year, just to, just to see how much more winter we will be having. But let's get let's get down to. I'm mean, that's not a joke either. Right? It's something I really enjoy. Uh, let's get down to business. One of our favourite Bill Murray vehicles, or certainly mine. Uh, Groundhog Day is a film, as as you say, Fletch, from 1993, which, um, as a kid growing up, meant an awful lot to me, because this was the Bill Murray film I watched as a child, sort of immediately after Ghostbusters. This was the next Bill Murray thing that I probably got into. So, as far as I was concerned, especially when I figured out that Egon directed it, (laughs) as far as I was concerned, this was essentially Ghostbusters 3. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's an important one for me. What about yourself? The other week we spoke about Titanic, and what we said about Titanic is also true of Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day has been with us forever. Neither mm-hmm. of us can remember a time when we were without Groundhog Day. Now, for Titanic, mm-hmm. which was released in 97, 98, yes, we were sentient before its release, but you know good uh, good word use but, but as long as there as long as we have been into cinema properly there has been titanic groundhog day goes back even further luke was an infant when it came out i was only 10 years old myself in order to better understand it we've got to remove ourselves from our fandom of it slightly because it's so cemented in our culture 
we don't know life without it. Let's begin halfway through, which is where the original script began. <laughs> shall we talk about shall we talk about Danny Rubin a bit? And I think he sold his script for a film that became Here No Evil, a film that I am yet to consume or see. Uh, but he moved to LA, young scriptwriter in around uh, 1990, developed the Groundhog Day script on the advice of his agent who said that oh, you should have this kind of high concept script that you can just leave around with with people get you into meetings and you'll pick up other work off of it because it will be an intriguing idea which is precisely uh, what he did and I think um, initially he had this idea that if a person could live forever if they were immortal uh, over a very long period of time how would they change and I think he had all of these ideas about it would be the a guy going through lots of different eras of history in this kind of thing and of course um, that would have been completely impractical so he then he then developed this idea of it would be the same a guy living one day over and over again essentially I, I think that's that's where it, it got to and it started to develop a li- little bit of interest I got a lot of my information as well because I barely remembered this but in 2016 it's been doing a stint as a musical in London and uh, Tim Minchin, and, yeah. And so there's a great article um, on the Telegraph website, which is not behind their paywall either. And it's it's by Danny Rubin called "How I Wrote the Script for Groundhog Day in Less Than a Week." And I think he actually did manage to get just little bits of work off off of it as well, just uh, probably doing ghost writing or rewrites, this kind of thing. He doesn't go into any detail there. But he um, he does talk about how it came quite naturally after he came up with the idea of uh, someone living the same day again and again. And like I alluded to earlier on as well, the film as we all know it has that three-act structure. We're introduced to Bill Murray, uh, Phil Connors, uh, Annie McDowell as uh, as Rita, and also Chris Elliott as Larry, his cameraman. We're introduced to them in the final cut at, at the beginning of the movie. There's a proper three-act structure, essentially a beginning, middle, and end, even though he's living the same day again and again. But at one point in, in the script, it was definitely written from almost the half, halfway through point. You open up, why does this guy seem to be immortal or some kind of god? Why can he predict everyone's behaviour and what they're about to say? And then over time, through various devices like narration, uh, you were going to figure out that actually he was stuck in this in this same day again and again. There's a part of me that that almost wants to see that early cut. It, it was never a cut, I hasten to add, sorry. That early script made into a film. I almost want to see that kind of more indie film approach to it. What we got ultimately was the, the romantic element was played up a lot more. It, it was certainly a more traditional comedy film, but no less enjoyable, I hasten to add. I think the key to understanding the metatext of Groundhog Day, the production of it, is understanding the tension between Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. A tension between a director inclined towards comedy and Mm -hmm. a star who's left behind his comedy roots and is far more interested in something which comments with much greater clarity and erudition on the human condition. Listeners may be well aware that after the production of Groundhog Day, Harold Ramis and Bill Murray did not speak until weeks before the death of Harold Ramis. By all accounts, Bill Murray held this grudge. I think it connects to the themes of Groundhog Day as well, in a way lost time. Uh, I think, yeah. it's, think it's such an in- incredible tragedy that over the course of more than two decades, the Murricane and Harold Ramis spoke a couple of times only at a bar mitzvah and at a wake, a fortnight or so before Harold retreated to his actual deathbed. 
Brian Doyle Murray, Bill's brother. Who who is in Groundhog Day as of well? Of course, yeah, yeah, as Buster, the yeah. uh, mm-hmm. the master of ceremonies that Brian Doyle Murray said to Bill, this man's fucking dying. You've got days to get your head out your ass now. So he called by Ramis's, uh, they spoke about the Cubs and did what they could to bury the hatchet. Listeners yeah. may recall that at a recent Academy Awards, the, the one that followed uh, the death of Harold Ramis, very touchingly, Bill Murray was presenting with Amy Adams. I think it was for cinematography. He announced the nominations and then turned... The, the uh, A camera came in from a different angle. It cut back to him and he said, and oh yeah, Harold Ramis for Caddyshack, Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day. And there was a wonderful mm. applause and the look on Murray's face, um, s- such sadness on his face. And it, I think he, like I, just rue the lost time. All that time mm. that, f- for reasons that were probably lost to antiquity, for all of that time, and, and then he's dead. And you, it's like mm. my father says, there's always more money, don't waste time. Mm. I think Groundhog Day speaks to that a little bit as well. But getting back to the tension between them, and Murray was going through a divorce at the time, uh, Ramis couldn't deal with, for whatever reasons, Ramis wasn't able to deal with his old friend Bill Murray, and so... Uh, somewhat shrugged him off onto Rubin so that they could forge together the screenplay they wanted to work from. It seems like Murray never forgave him for that. Uh, We can only speculate about exactly why Murray felt so vociferously about that. But I think that one thing that needs to be understood is to see this in the context of their career as a partnership. They came up together in Lemmings, Saturday Night Live and Second City Television... So Harold Ramis, to a lot of people, is Egon from Ghostbusters. He's a lot more than that. He's one of the best writers of comedies in the 70s and 80s. Animal House, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters, consecutively. One after the other, followed by (laughs) Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, which is fine. Then a couple of ropey ones, but came back with Groundhog Day. And Mm. Harold Ramis and... Bill Murray formed something of a double act in the same way that Steve Martin and Rick Moranis often worked together in the 80s and into the 90s. They did about five films together, but Ramis and Murray were perceived as a double act. Murray, by the, by the middle of the 90s, Bill Murray was finished with comedy. And you, I think you know this, Luke, as well. He literally did study at the Sarbonne. He essentially jacked in Hollywood and began making films much more sporadically yeah. after um, after Ghostbusters. It was, he, he wanted to... Clearly, he was in a, a man of intelligence and developing sophistication and developing education and wanted to pivot into greater art. And there's always been mm-hmm. this tension ever since. So after finishing Ghostbusters and The Razor's Edge with Byram, cameo in Little Shop of Horrors, came back for Scrooge in Ghostbusters 2, wrote and directed Quick Change, which I think is tremendous, but then still, that the work was quite varied. It was one only one or two pictures a year. And around the time of Groundhog Day, also Mad Dog and Glory, which is a f- fun because it flips. Uh, Murray plays the mafioso. Yeah. It, it's a gangster film, and yet De Niro isn't one of the gangsters. To put it more succinctly, there was a perception that Murray needed Ramis to be funny because of their early work together, because all of their best stuff was together. And Murray didn't like that. I think that when they 
reunited for Groundhog Day. He felt like he was regressing in some way as an artist. Exactly that. A better way of putting it. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, yeah. Ramus was, you know, uh, uh, it's the the Godfather line, right? You know, I try and get away and they drag me back in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he'd, that had already happened with Ghostbusters 2 as well. It's a little bit like what we always say with Harrison Ford and Han Solo. It's as though mm. Harrison Ford took on Star Wars in 1976 and said, can he die in this one, please? And, you know, <laughs> Empire, can he die in this one, please? And it, something <laughs> similar with Bill Murray, where they, uh, together, it was really Danny Aykroyd's baby. They take on uh, Ghostbusters, and you get the feeling that if Murray could have got out of Ghostbusters, he would have done. So Ghostbusters 2 was anathema. Ghostbusters 3 was just beyond the pale. I'm astonished that he eventually turned up in that one. But yes, even by Ghostbusters 2, he's moved away from the comedy fraternity. And in in that time, he'd only made a couple of pictures. He still had a a long-standing friendship with Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donoghue that he worked on Scrooged with. But I think he felt, probably, that his time with Ramus was behind him and he didn't any longer want to be Carl Spackler from Caddyshack. Yeah, you know, that and he, makes he didn't sense. want to be John Winger from Stripes. He wanted to. It... So why in '97 does he uh, do the man that knew too little? <laughs> Which uh, see, is, yeah. He, oh my God, what was the other one? The year or two before with the elephant, larger than larger life, than yeah. life. I, I yeah. just a couple of months ago I picked that up on VHS. Now all of those films are fine. Lar- even larger than life is fine, and there's a terrific extended cameo from Matthew McConaughey as a crazy there trucker. Is. And, and and I think that the reason for Larger Than Life is that Murray had a good relationship with Howard Franklin. They worked on Quick Change together. Mm. And I think he was happy to consent to those terms when working with a friend. And you're right, he did go back... Uh, after a time, he went back to fairly broad comedy, just yeah, as quickly. Com- they, they then didn't make any money, so I guess yeah. that was almost... Yeah, just uh, as... That was, that almost, almost was salt in the wound, you know? He, he goes back arguably giving the public what they want, but their their lacklustre uh, performances at the box office. Yeah, I, so this is... In the past, Luke and I have spoken about how we'd like to see Bill Murray do one last really funny film. But mm. we could have had that conversation 10 years ago and even 20 years ago because, like Steve Martin, I don't think Murray ever wants to be that wild and crazy guy again. That was something he did approaching 40 years ago. That's the other thing we need to think. Like Those films seem fresh to us, because we can watch them any time that we want. Uh, I think that in the life of Bill Murray, born in 1950, he was that kind of humour in when he was 26 years old and when he was 30 years old. And by the time he was 35, like anybody, he wanted to move on. And yet he still has a fan base and uh, a fraternity and producers and and a career that would seek to confine him. In understanding Groundhog Day, it needs to be seen in the context that this... For for many people, this was a, a double act, the uh, the reunion of a great double act that had made in Caddyshack, Stripes and Ghostbusters and Meatballs, four of the funniest comedies of the 70s and 80s, but that was on its last legs and there were so many reasons why it was ready to burst apart and never rekindle again. I, I And thanks for putting a bit of context around it, because when I was a teenager growing up, I never quite understood... Uh, as to why they didn't get on anymore, why they didn't talk. It's heartbreaking. It's it's really heartbreaking. Don't respect the decision he made. I, we None of us can know exactly what happened, and perhaps it was uh, a devastating betrayal by Ramis at a time when Murray was most vulnerable and most wounded from his own personal circumstances. But Luke, you know, whatever you did to me, I wouldn't leave it two decades to reconcile. 
blimey, just a, a couple of phone calls, you know? I think there's been a, a lot of talk that he was a bit frosty on set. Equally, though, is that classic Bill Murray thing of the... Uh, the Jekyll and Hyde sort of th- thing. Yeah. That kind of um, crazy eccentric thing he does. I know there's all these stories now in the tabloids occasionally that he'll just turn up to someone's wedding anniversary or something and just mm. have a party. Uh, and uh, during the making of Groundhog Day, I think on the on the first day that they were in Woodstock, the town that uh, the real life town that stood in for for Punks Tony in the movie, they um he he they were there shooting in this day of cold really really cold day and he turned i can't remember who he turned to is annie, annie mcdowell or whoever but he said uh i think everyone needs a danish we need to get danish because the whole the whole town was out watching them or you know there's a big group of people there watching them uh, film because of course it's a spectacle and he he went into the little local bakers and said like i need 500 danish right now <laughs> i just bought like this most like insane in of danish Exactly. Yeah, 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 just like in bananas. Um, so, so yeah, there's stories of of that. So I I've read over the years that he was frosty on set. I've also then, when I was rewatching the documentary on the DVD recently, in anticipation of this episode of uh, of the show, there's the, then stories that he's handing out Danish to the entire town. Yeah, I mean, what I admire about Bill Murray is that he's always shown a deep seated. Midwestern commitment to civility and manners. He's from Chicago. It's a mm. big town, but it has a small town mentality where please and thank you mean a lot. Murray has often fought on set with colleagues who don't adhere to the same politeness that we would all seek in co-workers. But I think that the exciting thing about this tension that we speak of between Ramis and Murray is that it created a fantastic film, a film I think that couldn't have been created without two men at loggerheads. I don't know if great art always requires uh, such conflict, Mm -hmm. but in this situation, Ramis is pulling it towards romantic comedy quite reasonably. Murray is intent on saying something greater about the human condition, and the film that we get is all the better for it. So I don't think the price they paid was worth it. Two decades of isolation from one another. It's horrible to think about. Good friends and a fantastic working partnership obliterated for 20 years. But I think Groundhog Day comes close to being uh, the kind of artistic statement that could possibly justify such a schism in a friendship. Mm. So that's all the context. These are very weighty themes we've already jumped right into for what is, for (laughs) most people, a comedy which, like Caddyshack, it's just a film about a funny rodent. But I, I, so, uh, I think it's relevant to, to think about the context in which it was created. So I think what's interesting is, is like you just alluded to, uh, Murray was looking for something a little bit more, um, to talk about the human condition and be a little bit more weighty than just, just a standard broad comedy. One of the things that, that Ruben says in this article that I, I noted earlier on The Telegraph is that um, at the time... He and Harold Ramis, when they were doing another take on the script, um, so Ramis and and um, and Ruben did a did a rewrite, and Ruben had a lot of anxiety that they were going to change it, make it more dull. Uh, Ramis talks about how he said, "No, no, we love on the DVD." He talks about how we love how it starts halfway through. We're not going to lose that. 
And of course, as they're getting into it, that's one of the first things that yeah. becomes evident that, that, that needs to go. But uh, what's interesting is Ruben does say that over the past 20 years, he's received sacks of fan mail from all over the globe, letters and articles and sermons and dissertations from psychologists who prescribe the film to their patients, from philosophers and religious leaders, as well as friends and fans of all stripes. But he does say that it was never intended by himself or Howard Ramos to be anything more than a, a good, heartfelt, entertaining story. He said that... Um, that he and Ramus had really great conversations about Buddhism and reincarnation, about Superman and the ethics of not saving everybody constantly. Yeah. So on the DVD, Ramus will joke about how, uh, you know what, if, if Superman were real, wh- why is he sitting around talking to Lois Lane all the time? Yeah. Because there would always be something kicking off. He would always have to be... He doesn't have to sleep either. So he would, he would, always, he would always be somewhere saving someone. And of course, uh, Bill Murray's character later on in the film, when he really is developing tr- uh, that truly altruistic, um, making that truly altruistic choice of, of just helping as many people as he can in the town. He's already gone through the all the, the, the stages of, uh, of, of this infinite day uh, where he was in disbelief and then horror and then trying to kill himself uh he's already gone through the whole um existential process of so if i live forever i guess there are no consequences i can uh drive on the railroad tracks and and uh, see oh i bet the train's gonna swerve first when he is going through that final act like i say towards the end of the film He's truly altruistic. That's when he's he's kind of doing what Ramus uh, said Superman probably ought to be doing. No matter what happens, uh, he, he's going to be there to help people. Because, of course, when he's first trying to court Annie McDowell's character, we kind of think that's where, ah, he's going to learn to be a good person. And he's he learns to, he fancies her, so he, he's going to be nice to her and stuff now. Well, of course, that's not it. He needs to go beyond that and... Um, and uh, and do things that are not for personal gain. So the the key moment, of course, is when the little kid falls from the tree. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? You little brat! You have never thanked me. I'll see you tomorrow, maybe. But that's exactly it. This kid's never thanked him for uh, him for, for Bill Murray to save him from falling out the tree, but he does it anyway because he knows that that's that's the right thing to do. But uh, but Ruben says that they had a lot of chats about you know the ethics of Superman not saving anyone constantly and other philosophical ideas that are inherent in the story. But he does say that they never anticipated the impact the film would have. But they did know probably from from the beginning when they he and Ramus started collaborating on the script. He knew that he'd stumbled upon a story that that had the makings of a classic because it was it was simple, it was true, uh, and it could be retold many, 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 many different ways. And I think it is up there with some of the great, you know, f- for me, some of the greatest time travel films of all time are, or, or stories of all time, are Christmas Carol and Back to the Future. I think this is this is one of them. I know he's not traveling through time necessarily. But there is the feeling of the weight of time. Uh, the documentary on the DVD is called The Weight of Time. There's that obviously that iconic shot of the clock when they, they have just... They've obviously built a, a huge oversized prop of the of the clock. So when the numbers change and, and in slow motion, you see them 
dropping down and you feel the weight of the numbers changing so the alarm clock will will, will trigger it's a film that that, that yes you were talking about all, all of the behind the scenes um drama but it but it's a film that he just Ruben struck gold with the idea um and there's there's so many different ways um you can look into it and uh, again on the dvd that everyone kind of talks about how it's uh, a film that's interpreted by by so many different religions everyone at, at the time reacted to it saying hey you must be this you must be that because you must be one of us because this film completely talks to us but of course it's 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 not religious is it it's just spiritual and it's human yeah, yeah. and uh, anyone can interpret it in their own way morning morning you have to see the groundhog yes i am you think it's gonna be an early spring? I'm predicting March 21st. <laughs> Good guess. You know, I, I think that actually is the first day of spring. Morning. Uh, see the groundhog? Yeah. Think it'll be an early spring? <laughs> Didn't we do this yesterday? I don't know what you mean. <gasps> don't mess with me, pork chop. <sighs> what day is this? It's February 2nd. Groundhog Day. You know, I thought it was yesterday. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Morning. Off to see the groundhog. Buongiorno, signore. You think it's going to be an early spring? Winter, slumbering in the open air, wears on his smiling face a dream of spring. Ciao. Ciao. One of the things I really enjoy about Groundhog Day is imagining the casting for it. So Ken Hudson Campbell plays Man in Hallway. Doesn't sound like anything at all, and yet cemented in the memory. But and that's it's good to see the progression from uh, from a, a bullying Phil Connors who's inspiring fear in the people that he meets and sarcastic and sardonic, and then towards the end of the cycle <laughs> when every day he greets the man in hallway with uh, greets him in Italian. And bids him farewell with a chow. So Murray recites poetry at the bloke as he holds him after a couple of kisses and then says chow. And you see the glow on the face of Ken Hudson Campbell's character as he goes, chow. Yeah. Uh, then it's Mrs. Lancaster, the uh, rather clueless, ignorant uh, proprietress of the bed and breakfast, followed by the homeless man who Murray, over the course of time, tries in vain to save. Ned Ryerson yeah. is the next character that we meet, and I think it's here. Stephen Tobolowsky has created a cult. And now, the film mm. isn't littered with cameos in that way. It's a film that could be. The, the premise would lend itself to a parade of comic cameos from experienced comedians. And, you would, you know, you, in other hands, you wouldn't have been surprised if it had Dan Aykroyd, Lorraine Newman, Chevy Chase, Brian Doyle Murray. Phil... Hey, Phil? Phil? Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me, because I sure as heck fire remember you. Not a chance. <laughs> Ned! Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Ned Ryerson got the shingles real bad senior year, almost didn't graduate. Bing! Again! Ned Ryerson, I dated your sister Mary Pat a couple times till you told me not to anymore. Well? 
Ned Ryerson? Bang! Bang! <laughs> so did you turn pro with that belly button thing, Ned, or No, what? Phil, I sell insurance. What a shock. Do you have life insurance? Because if you do, you could always use a little more. Am I right or am I right or am I right? Right, right, right. Ned, I would love to stand here and talk with you. But I'm not going to. <laughs> See hey, that's all right. I'll walk with you. Yeah, uh, he he's interviewed uh, quite a bit on the DVD, and uh, he talks about how he's just riffing on it. He says like, "I'm just gonna go, I'm just gonna go really, really big, okay? Uh, just see, see if see if we see if you want to go with this." Uh, and he did. He just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and he does those. I can't recreate it, but he'll do the little like purrs and the the, the little roars, you know. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it's great. I, I I think his crowning achievement is possibly towards uh at the end of the movie when um <laughs> he bumps into Annie McDowell and Bill Murray Bill Murray's finally got the girl he's finally learnt to uh to be truly altruistic and uh and he talks about how Bill Murray's just bought all of his every product you know every the full extent of life insurance because that's it as well he's a life insurance salesman mm. uh there's a joke in there somewhere but I, I do like the irony that he sells life insurance and Bill Murray has no life. Uh, he's stuck in a time loop. He would have no need for life insurance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he can't. Yeah. He can't die as well. Like there's, there's so much comedy in there. Uh, but yeah, I think his crowning achievement is at the end when it turns out Bill Murray's bought e- every product, the full extent of life insurance. And even Annie McDowell doesn't want to hang out with him. <laughs> and, uh, let's go get a drink or something. He says, and she goes, "Oh, let's not spoil it." Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, Oh, I just got that, and then he does the big, the big, like yeah, kind of purr. Yeah, yeah. He's great. He just, <laughs> he just looks so good on camera because people forget this a lot, and um, I talk about this with a lot, a lot of different films. Unless it's a purely dramatic film, you don't always get a close up. You know, you, mm. you don't, and uh, people forget that on camera you have to do things ten times bigger anyway. He just did it by a hundred, you know, that, and then and then that's how it, it then looks big. He's fantastic. Each one of the supporting roles is very well cast. Ralph and Gus, played by the Ricks, Rick Overton and Rick DeCommon. Rick DeCommon is one of my most favourite comedians of all time. Well known as Art Weingartner in The Burbs, but has also mm-hmm. been a favourite of John McTiernan and turned up in Last Action Hero and Die Hard. He's the bloke who says, Naka told me, Hunt for Red October... Last Boy Scout as well for Tony Scott and Joel Silver. Rick Overton is less well-known, but uh, they play Ralph and Gus, the bar- the kind of down-on-their-luck, working-class dipsomaniacs yeah. hanging out at, at the tip-top. Robin Duke plays Doris the waitress. Harold Ramis cameos himself and does a funny squint. He refers mm. Murray to a psychiatrist brilliant piece by David Pasquisi, who I know from Strangers with Candy and more recently has spent four or five years as Julia Louis-Dreyfus's ex-husband in Veep. Mm-hmm. An early role for him, and Ramus has returned to him two or three times. Yeah, he's one... so young in that, isn't he? In, yeah, in, in yeah. Groundhog Day, and then just to think of him in Veep. I, one of the things I like about that as well is that he somehow, in one day he manages to get an appointment with a, a GP of some <laughs> kind, with Howard Ramos, and then also to get referred to a psychiatrist. I, I thought that was pretty good going, to be honest with you. That is good, actually. Yeah, I wonder if he just waves money at them, as he does with the piano teacher. <laughs> but my favourite cameo, though, is just a Before They Were Famous. Uh, Debbie Kleiser and Fred. It's Michael Shannon, of all people, his first ever role. Excuse me, Mr. 
Mr. Connors. Hey, Fred, how was the wedding? Well, I just wanted to thank you for making Debbie go through with it and everything. All I did was fan the flame of her passion for you, Fred. <laughs> you are the best. No, you are the best. Rita, this is Debbie and Fred Kleiser. Hi. Here you go, kids. Congratulations. What is this? No way. WrestleMania! No way! No way! <laughs> Let's take a moment then to look at the headline filmmakers, those people whose names are in the credits at the top of the film. So the music by George Fenton. Uh, the music of Groundhog Day is one of the most enjoyable aspects of it, and it's on full display at the very beginning of the film as it changes from jaunty to foreboding and back again, yeah. just like yeah. the weather. I think that sets the tone nicely. A lot about that initial sequence sets the tone, and we'll come back to that in a moment. George Fenton's known for his work in theatre as well as film scoring. However, he's prolific in television. I checked up on this because I've, I've seen this name in credits and mentioned so many times and presumed it had to be a different bloke. But no, it is the case that in addition to his work on various wildlife documentaries like Blue Planet, like Planet Earth, He's also, right. he did the music for Daily Politics, for instance. Dun, 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 and give them mm. 60 seconds of something. You and I always like to talk about films with theme songs. This has a this has a decent one, doesn't yeah. it? I like I love the theme song by uh by Dilbert McClinton. It's upbeat and peppy and they get it out of the way quickly. It doesn't have to recur in the film. It's written by Harold Ramis and George Fenton and it does I didn't know that Ramis had a co-writing uh, yeah. credit on that. That's good. I, I presume got... he did the lyrics and it it makes sense in that way because if you think that Mel Brooks wrote all of the lyrics for the producers for instance and if you've got a comedy mind I think you've got enough uh, analytical cynicism about you to write a good pop song because the, the, the <laughs> weatherman is very simple isn't it it's just if you don't believe me take me by the hand baby I can warm you up because I'm your weatherman yeah yeah and I think as well it, it rather explains Phil's character before his torment in Punks Attorney. Bailey, who we spoke of last time out on As Good As It Gets and mentioned that he was the cinematographer on Groundhog Day. I like his work better on this. Last time out, I talked about how the cinematography on As Good As It Gets is so confined and cramped. That may yeah. be a reflection of the central character, who is something of a shut-in, an agoraphobe, an obsessive-compulsive and I might, having thought about it for a couple of weeks, I might give Bailey the benefit of the doubt on this. But what I like about his work on Groundhog Day is, number one, that he opens it out, mid-shots and long shots, of the town of Punxsutawney. So we see where these characters are. I suppose it could be argued that in Groundhog Day, it's much more important to see the environment because of the way that uh, 
Phil turns onto the street corner where he meets the old homeless man. Then the audience needs to remember his path as he encounters Needle Nose Ned, Ned the Head. Then yeah. <laughs> falls into the watch that first step. It's a doozy, which I suppose it's a doozy for for anybody watching in the UK through their childhood must have presumed that doozy referred specifically to a thawing snowdrift which obscures a drain <laughs> in the street. But yeah, I, I, I think Needlehead Ned is making <laughs> is making a, a reference to uh, the I think like the first step on uh, the first step on the investment ladder or on the yeah. property ladder. You know, watch out for that first step uh, and applying it to a different paradigm. But as kids, you just think, "All oh, right, so that's what a doozy is." Then okay, <laughs> makes sense. But yeah, I, you're, I like... you're right about the character of, of the town. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think initially they looked to film it in the real Punxsutawney, and they they realised that the 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 field is it. Oh God, what's it? The knob, the cobbler's knob. Gobbler's knob. <laughs> dun 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 dun. Yeah, gobbler's knob. It's called gobbler's, gobbler's knob. knob. Again, the, so, the, the perfect the, the perfect term that would turn off Phil Connors. Exactly, and it, it's. Um, I think they found that it was too far from the from the, the centre of the town. And th- they were actually just location scouting and hit upon a, the other town, uh, uh, Woodstock, purely just to stop and get some coffee or something. And then they looked around and realised it was just what they needed. And what I like about it is it, it's a real place, but it has the that feeling of the backlot, doesn't it? It feels like yeah. the universal backlot where they did uh, um, uh, Back to the Future, it most does, famously. yeah. yeah. Um, and it's got that traditional town square vibe. You can see where everything is uh, in relation to the other thing. I know I talk about this a lot on the podcast and I, I go on and on and on about it because I always like um, our, a lot of our favourite directors uh, that give you a sense of geography, uh, uh, largely through editing. But I really do think geography is important in a film to, to know where you are and have a, a sense of place. Uh, Groundhog Day does that very, very well indeed. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you made the same connection that I did because as he moves around Punxsutawney's town square, I also did think of the famous universal backlot used on Back to the Future. But it, uh, I think that's okay and I think it shows you a consideration of the town because the town is a character. It's important that the town is a character. It's meant to represent a lot of negative things for Phil Connors. Uh, most of all, stagnation in his career. And we'll come to that in a moment. <laughs> Keep a secret, Larry. I'm probably leaving PBH. So this will be the last time we do the Groundhog together. I don't understand what's wrong with the Groundhog Festival. You know, when I worked in San Diego, I covered the Swallows returning to Capistrano six years in a row. Someday somebody's going to see me interviewing a Groundhog. I think I don't have a future. Well, I, I, I like the cinematography here, and I, I like that they're at least... A couple of instances where the framing and the, the the makeup of the shot forms the joke. So often in modern comedy, it's uh, just a matter of pointing a camera at a couple of people who are improvising dirty jokes. Too often only Edgar Wright, who's actually making jokes using cinematography. You know, it shouldn't mm. just be left to Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin to make jokes using film can't be done in stand-up and can't be done in theatre you're using the camera as a tool for comedy there's a couple of instances of that in Groundhog Day which is heartening and then looking at the immediate supporting cast uh, Chris Elliott is an actor who I've 
always disliked. Oh, almost disliked? Di- almost That's irrationally, so- yeah. Like Espinosa <laughs> knows this about me as well. And I think it's partly because he plays a jerk so well. But a, quite a specific kind of jerk. Um, it feels like he's kind of playing himself in a way, I suppose. Uh, I think he, he doesn't have a lot of vanity, which is to his credit. He was in Get mm. a Life, which I never caught, an early 90s sitcom which involved Charlie Kaufman. Bob Odenkirk had a hand in it. Chris Elliott played a paperboy in his 30s, living in a garage. Brian Doyle Murray p- pops up in it, and I've never bought it on DVD. I'll make sure that I do that this year. If I have mm. any money left, I am currently in the midst of a move. But once I've knocked that on the head and rearranged my Laserdiscs, DVDs, VHS, etc., etc., then I will commit some funds to catching up on a couple of things on the old-fashioned DVD. And Andy McDowell, I think uh, good Andy McDowell films are rare and good Andy McDowell (laughs) performances are even rarer. Right. But she's okay in this. She's fine. She's got one hell of an accent. And yeah. that's the most that's the most important thing in this film, I think, is her beautiful southern accent, that twang. She's so uh she just represents uh, something pure, doesn't she? And that's that's what yeah, Phil yeah. uh needs to aspire to. I like her in Magic Mike XXL. That's a performance of hers that I properly enjoyed from the very beginning. Saw it at the cinema, was waiting for her to suck, and she didn't, and I liked that. And in this one, you're right, she is pure. And it brings us to something I wanted to draw our attention to. As she says in the film, she goes with the flow. Mm. I go with the flow. And I think we see that in Synecdoche at the very beginning of the film, filmed at the very end of the production, when the filmmakers realised they did need a prologue just to set up a few things. Combined with the credits, it says a lot about the film that we're about to see. And I like that. And I'll try and take us through it. She stands on the weather map and she's wearing a blue jacket, which means that she becomes invisible. Yeah, on the blue screen. Yeah, on the on the blue screen of the weather map. And she's looking at herself on the monitor and having a lot of fun with it. And it's though she is at one with the weather forecast. She's at one with the meteorological events around her. She's happy floating around in it. That's cool. She goes with the flow. Whereas the, the first shots we have of Phil... Quite specifically, we see Murray's hands moving. He's explaining the weather. He's doing his to camera as the weatherman. But it's just a completely blue screen. We see him in situ, but we don't see him as he appears on television. Yeah, so with it's, the weather it's, map behind yeah, him. Yeah, it's kind of absurd. Then, the next shot, he's blowing the weather. Remember? He, he yes. kind of miming, blowing the weather front. As if he controls the weather, as if he really thinks that he can control the weather. Because I think that's what it's communicating to the viewer. It's saying, here's a weatherman who really thinks he's important enough that he's in charge of all this shit. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I then think he's a really good point. And then he's, he says as well, he says, I'm going out on a limb here, but that storm is going to miss us. A- against all other meteorological expert advice, he says, mm. no, nah, don't worry about it. We're not going to get the blizzard. It's just a couple of flakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I and um, I think that speaks to the characters and it shows that the hubris of Murray's character of Phil Connors, he thinks he can control the weather, he thinks he can control everything around him and that he is the big enchilada at that station. He's professionally dissatisfied and almost in, in another way of understanding that he's professionally dissatisfied as well. He's rude to everybody that he meets and uh, he needs to be taught a lesson. He needs to learn a lesson and it's a lesson about becoming a better man and uh, learning humility 
I remember about 15 years ago, this hit me like a thunderbolt, and then I almost immediately forgot the precise wording, and I've never been able to claw it back. <laughs> so frustrating. I was sitting in a computer lab, either at the end of sixth form or when I was studying in San Francisco, and something about Groundhog Day occurred to me, something about the weather, and I lost it, and I've never regained it properly. <laughs> but it's something like this, right? This is as much as I can remember. It's something like this, that the weather changes from day to day, but if you stand far enough back from it, it doesn't change, and we call it climate. Yeah. And I think that's what the film is communicating. I think that's the point that it has to say. There's a reason Danny Rubin made him a weatherman. There's a reason he gave him, created the duality of Phil Connors and Phil the Groundhog, and they're both weathermen. They're both trying to predict the future. Weather changes from day to day, but if you stand back from it, it's the same and it's called climate and nothing changes and that's what happens with Phil he is a I think he's a character of of ego as Rita says uh, he says you think I'm acting this way because I'm egocentric and she says it's your defining characteristic yeah 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 yeah. Uh, so he's a man of ego and a lack of humility and rudeness and he's uncivil and very non-Chicagoan to everyone that he meets and when we talk about will Phil see a shadow we may as well be talking about Phil Connors. So Phil, if uh, Phil the Groundhog sees a shadow, then it means six more weeks of winter. But that's the disposition that Phil finds himself in because this is his fifth Groundhog Day in a row. Or is it fourth? I think it's five, isn't uh, it? I think it's fourth. He's, he himself feels stuck. His life is stuck in something of a rut and then it becomes literally stuck in a rut. However, what he needs to learn is that that is life. I think that's the, the lesson that, that Groundhog Day is teaching us and that's why so many belief systems can take from Groundhog Day what they want or can be applied to Groundhog Day because day to day we are stuck where we're stuck and it's like as he's talking to Rick DeCommon and Rick Overton. You know, some guys would look at this glass and they would say, you know, that glass is half empty. Other guys would say, that glass is half full. I think you as a glass-is-half-empty kind of guy, am I right? What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? No, that sums it up for me. Phil doesn't realise that that's the human condition. His character needs to learn that in spite of that, it's important to be good to people, to do good works, to become a better man and make as positive an impact as you can. And I think it's it's very well demonstrated uh, during the um, one of the troughs of his misery around the time mm. that he resorts to suicide. And we should all remember as well, and I checked this one, it's 75 minutes into the film before he considers being nice, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> Yeah, he, he tries can, like, everything. Like I alluded to earlier, he, he does try everything else before he decides to be altruistic. Yeah, he, he succumbs he, he tries to suicide to kill himself. a dozen yeah. times before he thinks, what if I'm decent to people? <laughs> yeah, and he tries to seduce Annie McDowell um, insincerely yeah. by learning yeah, yeah. what she likes. and like, It's clear that he sincerely wants to, to be with her, but it's it's not enough, you know? He needs to be... Superman, where no matter what happens, even if people aren't going to thank him, he will help them out. So the kid in the tree, the elderly uh, ladies as well, who think that there's an earthquake because their <laughs> yeah. broken down car starts to rattle, and then he's there just uh, under, <laughs> uh, jacking them up. 
it's okay, ma'am. I had the jack and the tire. <laughs> I just need to fix it, uh, which so, is yeah, great. Yeah. You just sit tight. What what he learns is that the monotony of daily life doesn't abnegate our responsibility to just be decent to one another, which is something that that character has forgotten mm. over the course of his life, and he needs to be reminded of it. And he doesn't he doesn't stop seeing a shadow until he comes out of that. And so it, this is the way that it's put. So around the time that he's killing himself over and over again and he's, uh, he's reached rock bottom, he turns to Rita during the newscast and says, you want a prediction about the weather? You're asking the wrong Phil. I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold, it's going to be grey, and it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Yeah. But then, <laughs> when he's through his ordeal, when he begins to understand, when he's, when he's learning his lessons, and one of the most important lessons is uh, nothing about Groundhog Day changes. That's the, I mean, and now because it's entered the lexicon, all of us know that, but this is the film that, this is the film that coined the term Groundhog Day, which means repetition, repetition, repetition. Nothing changes. He's the Mm. one that has to change. And so in the exact same circumstances, but with a different disposition and having learned and understood, he reels off that wonderful, almost soliloquy. When Chekhov saw the long winter, he saw a winter bleak and dark bereft of hope. Yet we know that winter is just another step in the cycle of life. But standing here among the people of Punxsutawney and basking in the warmth of their hearths and hearts, I couldn't imagine a better fate than a long and lustrous winter. From Punxsutawney, it's Phil Connors. So long. And that's the key. They've all stayed the exact same. It's him that has to change. It's his outlook on life, his perspective, and realising that a man on a street corner isn't an imposition because he needs your money. He's in dire need, and you should give him as much, give to him as much of you as you can. Admittedly, one of the funniest parts is when he welcomes Ned with a hug and says, whatever you're doing, <laughs> I want you to call in sick. And Ned, <laughs> a slight homophobe, goes... Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, I terrific. think it was an ad-libbed, uh, ad-libbed moment as well, so but, and, um, and uh, completely worth it. But it shows, you know, you catch more flies with honey. Again, it took him so many iterations before he thought, what if I'm nice to Ned? What happens mm. then? I get rid of him immediately and he has that wonderful, and runs away. <laughs> <laughs> he does but run away. I think that, for me, that's the central tenet, that the the central message the film is delivering is that Phil needs to learn this lesson. He's uh, a man who feels he's in complete control, and this is his, his purgatory is understanding humility. There's a whole, a whole other set there's, of lessons to learn from oh, it as well. There's loads, there's loads. And, but who else, other than Bill Murray, uh, there, there are very few people that could, could play that in the same in the same way, because... You know, when 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 the character's set up at the beginning, he is awful. But we really are rooting for him. We really, really are. I guess part of it's just because he's Bill Murray, but but it works and it works and it's convincing at the end uh, when he turns. You know what? In contrast, I've never quite believed Scrooged. I like Scrooged. Mm, I've enjoyed mm. Scrooged. But at the end, when Bill Murray has the turn, I've never quite believed it. And I think there's something about that movie where it feels a little bit more like he's going through the motions, maybe in his performance as well. This this one, I felt like he was trying to do good work. 
you talked about that soliloquy as well. I do wonder if that's something because Bill Murray doesn't have a writing credit on the film, but I know that he was like like you said was was going away and and doing some more work on the script with Ruben to try and satisfy himself. And I I wonder if moments like that are, are from him uh, or, or or from that partnership. I I don't know. Uh, probably never will know the soliloquy is a great moment and uh, and you're right you're absolutely right no one else changes that's the whole point i think you've identified something important there and that's that making scrooge was probably easy richard don is a very experienced hollywood director runs a tight set we've mentioned before how lethal weapon 4 had a turnaround of about six months but the honesty of groundhog day isn't seen in scrooged and it's probably no. because it took just as phil connor's had to walk on glass so did Harold Ramis and Bill Murray in making this film. I can't say, from a human point of view, I can't say it was worth it to see their friendship degenerate, rupture, and never rekindle. Mm. But from an artistic standpoint, what we've been given is a piece of Americana which is comparable to It's a Wonderful Life. Other casting choices included Tom Hanks and Michael Keaton. So, And Harold Ramis worked with Michael Keaton a couple of years later on Multiplicity, which has echoes of this film. And I think that with Michael Keaton, you would have begun the film with a slightly edgier character, a more manic character. But I don't think the transition to good would have been as pronounced. I think by the end of the film, you'd still feel that it was edgy, manic Michael Keaton. And Mm. Tom Hanks is, at that stage in his career, I think an audience would be less accepting of a cynical Tom Hanks at that time. Uh, So I think that, yeah, Bill Murray is a perfect choice for this. And you're right, he starts the film as a bastard. If you watch it again, he's got, he doesn't have any time for anybody around him and he's deliberately nasty yeah. and unnecessarily so as well. And we, yeah, as you say, we allow it because it's Bill Murray. A different audience who hadn't grown up with the Murricane would probably see the film in purer terms and think, wow, what a bastard. Why is he being a prick to everybody? He needs to learn a lesson. <laughs> How long do you think, Fletcher, Bill Murray was, was stuck in Purgatory for? Oh, have... I'd, well, I, I don't go for the... Uh, I don't like to think it was centuries because that's uh, just existentially devastating, <laughs> yeah. But I, I, will, I, I will accede that maybe 10 years. 10 years is yeah. acceptable. He I'm, does I'm learn a lot sh- of skills. I'm pretty sure that Ramus has mentioned 10 years. I think that, that one's on the record. Uh, various people have attempted to try and work it out. I'm not sure how, how you'd do it. Uh, there's a website called Obsessed with Film, who uh, are the ones that I'll probably single out. Uh, there's a chap there that uh, that gave it a good go, and they reckon that it was 12,403 days. So that's uh, three. Uh, sorry, 33 years and 350. 58 days well above uh that 10 years that we we mentioned uh with Howard Ramos being on the record with so apparently what they did was they added up uh, every day that we actually see Phil 
living through plus any day that he mentions but that we don't see so like he mentions that he was stabbed and shot and poisoned and frozen and hung and yeah. electrocuted and burned uh but we only actually see the electrocution <laughs> so uh, so there's more days you can add there but like you say, uh, maybe maybe centuries is just too much to even get your head around. That mm. that really depresses me to think. About I don't it. like to think of it being stuck there, but that's the thing. One of the lessons that's imparted is that the the townsfolk of Punks Attorney are stuck there. Doris mm. wishes only that she could see Paris before she dies. What uh, a modest hope! This is Doris. Her brother-in-law Carl owns this diner. She's worked here since she was 17. More than anything else in her life, she wants to see Paris before she dies. Oh, boy, what a... What are you doing? This is Debbie Kleiser and her fiancé, Fred. Do I know you? They're supposed to be getting married this afternoon, but Debbie is having second thoughts. What? Lovely ring. This is Bill. He's been a waiter for three years since he left Penn State and had to get work. He likes the town, he paints toy soldiers, and he's gay. I am. This is Gus. He hates his life here. He wishes he stayed in the Navy. Well, I could have retired on half pay after 20 years. Excuse me? Is this some kind of trick? Well, maybe the real God uses tricks. You know, maybe he's not omnipotent. He's just been around so long. He knows everything. Oh, okay. Well, who's that? This is Tom. He worked in the coal mine until they closed the town. And her? It's Alice. Came over here from Ireland when she was a baby. She lived in Erie most of her life. He's right. And her? Nancy. She works in the dress shop and makes noises like a chipmunk when she gets real excited. Hey! It's true. That's the reality and the humility that Phil needs to learn, that actually his life isn't so bad. He may be only a weatherman in Pennsylvania, but uh, he's not as stuck as he, he feels that he is. I suppose another you know, another way of doing that film would be to give it a greater preamble. We've really only given those that, that one scene, and the, 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 uh, the one scene at the station involving the co-anchor and the assistant played by Willie Garson, and then a short scene in the van as they travel to Punxsutawney. I think that's what makes it such a classic, is mm. that the, the setup is is so simple. It really is. The, the premise premise is very easy to get your head around, and you don't need lots of uh, setup. Clearly, they decided to go, as is so often the case in life, uh, they decided to go go more simple and just strip it out. A bit yeah. like Ghostbusters as well, when you know, the, the original version of Ghostbusters was interdimensional uh, tr- travel and, and all sorts of different things and in the end um it was it was stripped back down to its most kind of domesticated version danny Aykroyd enters the writer's room and says this is what we're working from and harold ramis and ivan whiteman gaze down upon this 400 page behemoth and then you know <laughs> ramis says to reitman listen get him talking about ghosts and law enforcement and you know <laughs> takes that 300 pages yeah, we're good to go, Dan. We just need maybe a couple of days on this. Ah, oh, fantastic, yeah. Heart of the Ghostbusters, ladies and gentlemen. Ramus has long been fantastic as uh, someone to write a script with, basically. Not a script editor, but somebody to give something to, and he bumps it up and makes it better. It was a terrible loss. So it was, And the weirdest thing is that around the time he found himself unable to direct a decent comedy picture, he was then picked up by Apatow's crew, and was funny in films as an actor. Turns up in Knocked Up and Walk Hard and Orange County. Prison has changed me. I understand the common man in a way I never did before. I gotta get out of here so I can bring joy to the men back in here. But I don't want to live with them. Lean closer. 
Ich will mit der Reden auf Mama löschen. Als die Wächter soll nicht verstehen, wo sie so. Ihr müsst doch etwas können, Ting. Ich bin in ganz 21 Jahre alt. Das ganze Leben steht nur vor mir. Wir meinen, dass wir wenn kennen machen, als soft sie dem. Wo ist mich Ting? Die müssen gehen in Rehab. Rehab? Rehab! Rehab? Oh, Rehab. Okay, okay, I got you. I'm trying to remember his final uh, appearance. It, 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 he has a cameo in something. What is oh, it? Oh, he I'm turns up to... his, in his own year one, which I found execrable when I saw it for the one and only time at the cinema. He uh, has yes. a dramatic cameo in something as well. Isn't it a Zach Braff film or something? I'm trying to remember. Oh, he's in The Last Kiss, yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. I never okay. saw that. Did you actually watch it? Well done. <laughs> no, no, I'm... Well done. I'm, I'm um, yeah, I'm not. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was. Curry, I did yeah. watch it at the time. Um, I think I went with uh, co-host, uh, co-host of Local Trouble, Mr. James Taylor. I think we went to the movies to see that when we were living in Norwich. So damn, I, I yeah. wasn't even certain it got a cinema release. I'm pretty sure we were the only ones in there. <laughs> no, I can't remember. Yeah, that was the that was um, the the last Zach Braff vehicle before that. Uh, this this one that he's written and directed again recently. Ramus um, was able to in the final final years of his career. Yeah, you're right. He he made some some good cameos, and uh, I guess the comedy films, the directorial uh, outings did did peter out. Uh, after this, was it immediately after Groundhog Day that he did Multiplicity with uh, no, Multiplicity? It, in between, with Stuart saves his family, which, as I've said before, isn't funny but is okay if you go in with the right mindset. Uh, it's a Saturday Night Live spin-off, and its reputation is almost as low as its pat. But mm. actually, it's well-acted, decent cast, led by Al Franken, Vincent D'Onofrio, Harris Eulin, who you'll remember as the judge from Ghostbusters 2. Burned at the stake! Yeah. And it's, it's okay. Um, please, listeners, presumably available on some streaming service, and if it isn't, that would only make me happier, because it's obscure, and I like to think that Netflix doesn't have anything beyond the last three Adam Sandler films and maybe Fast and the Furious, Fate of the Furious, Furriest Fury of All. But uh, yeah, Stuart Saves His Family is okay. And Multiplicity is rope, but fine. It feels like a bit of a Groundhog Day retread. Analyze this. It's just that uh, I I don't like Billy Crystal much. I feel like Harold Ramis is above that kind of humor. So, what do I do? I think we should meet again. How's tomorrow for you? Is that not good? Vetch, that was an absolute pleasure talking to you about it. It is one of my favourite all-time comedies. I think it was slightly mixed critical reactions, and I think it's been elevated over time, hasn't it? And I think as people have gone back back to it, people have discovered that the depths, that the perhaps hidden depths that weren't perceived there at the time. I know that Roger Ebert gave it sort of like a three out of five, then sort of went back on it. One of those films that he went back on and revisited and said, yeah, probably got that one wrong. Yeah, um, I think that... I think that Groundhog Day doesn't have an extraordinary thematic depth to it. I think if you've seen it once or twice, then you should understand what it's trying to tell you. And also it is, in in some ways, a fairly run-of-the-mill romantic comedy. It eschews some of the tropes, and quite gratifyingly, it doesn't have a kooky best friend. You know, there's usually somebody to bounce ideas off. Murray instead bounces off the entire town. 
There's a mm. dozen different types that he we draw comedy from and we understand his character through his interactions with the townspeople. Something that's odd about it, obviously, uh, we're celebrating Groundhog Day's 25th anniversary. It came out here on the 7th of May, 1993. I don't know how they screwed it up in the States, but in America it came out on the 12th of February. Oh, after Groundhog Day. Yeah, you'd think that a film in production with the title Groundhog Day could at least have its premiere on the 2nd, but they didn't manage that either. An absolute pleasure, Fletch. Thanks for chatting Groundhog Day with me. Um, I suppose uh, all that's left to say is do get in touch. Let us know what you think about the movie, of course, uh, if we missed anything out. I'm sure we did. Uh, all here on the Electronic Labyrinth, we attempt to leave uh, no stone unturned, but there's all, there's always plenty plenty of stones that, that, that remain untouched. So, yeah, get, get in touch if there's uh, anything that you wanted to bring to our attention. Go to onesensationalshot.com. You can get in touch with us there. On Twitter, we're at One Sensational. And of course, on Facebook, if you search One Sensational Shot, you'll find us there too. Please do leave us a review on iTunes. It's very, very easy, actually, on the iTunes app. To If, if you're listening to us on iTunes right now, for example, you can just scroll down and there's a star rating that you can, uh, that you can give us. Uh, five stars, preferably. And then you can say a few words. Literally take less than 30 seconds. Thanks very much for listening, guys. In the meantime, this is Luke and Fletcher here on the Electronic Labyrinth, signing off.